Hello, and welcome to the She's Heard podcast. My name is Emily Jennings. Today, I am honored and so excited to introduce you to Marie Elizabeth Molly. Marie Elizabeth is a life coach, poet, and underwater photographer. She grew up in New York with a Venezuelan-American father and Swedish mother. She grew up speaking Spanish, Swedish, and English. She currently bridges the worlds of personal and spiritual growth, health, and creative writing in her personal and professional life. She has a Master of Fine Arts in Poetry and has published a book of poems. She is a former massage therapist, acupuncturist, and herbalist who now focuses on coaching clients around intricacies of identity, freedom, and desire. She has practiced meditation for over 20 years and is currently a student at the Agape International Spiritual Center. You can find more info about her coaching, poetry, and photography at www.mamali.com. That's M-E-M-A-L-I.com. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Yes. The, the first one that comes to mind is something that happened in 2005 when I went to the National Poetry Slam in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I had started dating my future husband who was deeply involved in the slam poetry community. I had started writing poetry, but I wasn't a performance poet really by any means. And I was just kind of entering the community. There was a showcase for for Latino poets, Latino and Latina poets, and I really wanted to read a poem in it. And I was nervous because I didn't know whether or not I had the right to read there. At, because, because, well, because I'm white. And, or you present and, as white, right? Yeah, because I present, present as white. white. Yeah, thank you for yeah. that distinction. Because I'm, I'm still, I still am working out my own how to talk about it, even yeah. even though. Um, I'm more comfortable than I was. I still bump into problems of language. So, so because I present it white as white and have a very different experience of being Latina than many of the other poets who were reading at the showcase, and I'm very sensitive to places where white folks feel entitled to insert themselves just by the nature of being the dominant culture into certain spaces. And so I had this tentative fear, nervous kind of way about me when I approached the people who organized the reading. And a couple, two people I know, Richria and Fish Vargas was standing there, and Danny Solis, I think he might have been the host, I can't remember if he was standing there, but but I approached them and I, and I said, you know, oh my, my you know, <laughs> I remember now, you know, I, in this sort of shrinking, like, may I read, you know, I, I I just, uh, I, I was so terrified and, and, um, but, uh, but I asked, you know, it was a place where I just refused to stay invisible. I felt so invisible my whole life. I've been bilingual my whole life. I've grown up going to Venezuela every year. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's deeply a part of my being, that culture and that part of my family is my most close family. And, and so I, I don't have doubt about who I am, but I just have doubt about showing up in spaces as that because it is so invisible, skin-wise and features-wise, right? So uh, so I went up to Rick and Fish and said, you know, oh, you think I could read? I'd really like to read this poem, blah, blah, blah. And they said, of course. I mean, you're Latina. You're one of us. Why wouldn't you read? Come on. You know, it's this kind of huge, welcoming heart that my people tend to have. And so so I read my poem. And again, I wasn't a very experienced poet by that point, so I was trembling, you know, on stage and read this poem about having a heart with ears and that that listened to people in Spanish and Swedish and English and, and you know, it was a part it was a poem really about being mixed that um that everyone receives with so much love and so much encouragement. And so much, you know, oh, I really like your writing. Keep going, you know, keep writing, do that. That it, it was a seminal moment for me in terms of seeing myself as a writer, in terms of seeing that I could write about my experience of being mixed in a way that connected to people because I was afraid that I didn't know how to write about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it all, 
uh, helped me find my voice and led into the first section of my book of poetry that was published six years later that that deals a lot with questions of identity. Wow, that's beautiful. And I can see how scary that would be given you present as white, you're very, you identify as a Latina and you want to take responsibility for not taking up too much space in spaces where white folks tend to do that. And then at the same time, honor your voice and all the pieces of you. That's amazing. And also wonderful that they welcomed you so openly and with such warm hearts. Yeah, that, that was fortunate because I don't expect that. I mean, I, I yeah. think my default is probably not to expect that. <laughs> so when mm-hmm. that shows up, it's always very surprising to me. I mean, can I, can I just, uh, link another moment that just popped in my mind? Of course, yeah. That's, re- that's kind of related. Um, when I was in college, I went to Oberlin College and we had a Latino group in college, a Latino, Latina group in college. And again, we were a huge range of cues and backgrounds and people who spoke Spanish and people who didn't and, you know, and, and there was a Colombian girl, a Colombian woman and me who were white, presented as white with blue eyes all the way, you know, ranging all the way to indigenous looking folks and, and black looking folks, right? And so, and here we all are in this room wrestling with what it is to be Latino and Latina in, in this country. Again, it was one of those experiences. I can't think of a specific conversation that we had, but but it was one of those experiences of being in that room and all listening to each other and sort of hashing out these ways. Because there's ways that Latinos who don't speak Spanish get erased, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like, well, you don't speak Spanish, you know. And, and part of my claim to being Latina is that, well, I don't look it, but I speak Spanish, you know. And so, so there was this way that we all, uh, had to deal with each other and recognize even within one family. I mean, this was the thing about being Latino. It's a very mestizo culture. It's a very mixed culture where even in the same family, there's a huge range of, of how people look because of the history of the Spanish coming and, and slavery and indigenous and everything else. Like every country has within each family many different often many different mm-hmm. looking family members. And so so there was a way that recognizing that allowed us to find the larger family. Like, well, what is it that connects us? And ultimately mm-hmm. what connects us is a kind of culture, you know, a love of food, a love of family, a kind of warm-heartedness, expressiveness, music, you know, all the things that we found to be in common no matter where we each grow up or what we look like. Wow. That's, that's beautifully said. And really wonderful that you've leaned into and found spaces where you can unpack these uncomfortable kind of tricky conversations about what does it mean to be Latina or a person of color given the full spectrum of how it can be expressed and explore the idea of, well, what to me seems like, and please add anything that comes to mind, like the difference between fitting in versus belonging. And to me, fitting in kind of means like, oh, they look all the same, or they look like they go together, versus belonging seems like a much deeper level of self-expression and authenticity and coming together by core values versus the genetic lottery, though the genetic Mm -hmm. lottery obviously has an impact as to how we're treated in the world and our experiences and all of that. So there's so many things like variables that overlap that can be just by the nature of our, our experiences in the world. Mm-hmm. It can be tricky to talk about because we all have blind spots. Um, so it's like we got to be on the train <laughs> going in the direction <laughs> we want to go, right? But we're going to step on each other's toes in the process of it. But we got to love and 
respect each other enough to be honest about where we're hurt or where we are like shrinking or where we might be taking up too much space. So that's just exactly wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I think community is essential because we don't, we can't work that shit out alone. Yeah. You know, and it's like, and my default is always, um, because I have white privilege because I'm born, you know, into the dominant culture in a certain way, uh, my default is always to allow, you know, to sit back and allow and watch out and be, and am I stepping on toes? Oh God, I don't want to do that. You know, and, and so I, I kind of sometimes become this shrinking violet that, that my friends have to encourage out. You know, like, no, you, mm-hmm. your voice matters. Like, no, get in, get, get in here. <laughs> Say something. Mm-hmm. It's like, because I'm always, you know, I, and so I think that's where community has been really important for me and, and, um, you know, friends like Angel in particular who, um, you know, who, who I feel trust, you know, so much trust with that I will sometimes check myself, like, hey, I'm having this response to this situation. It, does that feel accurate or is that coming from some blindness or, you know, so I don't mm-hmm. check everything by her, but every now and then, you know, when it's really significant, um, I will, I will ask for support in that spot. I can think of a moment in particular, which is another moment that I found my voice where I actually called Angel and said, Hey, I'm having this inner response to this situation and I want to say something to the person, but I, I'm, I don't, uh, I'm not sure I can say it cleanly. I'm not sure what is the most constructive thing to say and is my, is my response even on track? And then she sort of walked me through and, and, uh, helped give me the strength to then call the person and speak up. And, and so that's where I think community is also really essential in, in navigating these sticky places. Yeah, because you, there needs to be a level of trust and respect where you can be honest and then trust that there's enough strength on the other side to hear the honesty one way or the other, you know, so. Exactly. And to, and for me, the concern is always, is the thing I want to say rooted in something real or is it coming out of my own projection? Right. Yeah. Because if it's coming out of my own projection, I don't necessarily have to say it to the person because <laughs> right. my shit. Right. Right. And exactly. So I think that's I think that's where we as a culture could perhaps exercise a bit more discipline with ourselves, you know, by by taking a moment and and checking with ourselves like, oh, is it is this reaction grounded in something I see with clarity? that the other person, you know, doesn't see and I could help them by pointing this out or is what I want to say grounded in some reactivity that I have because of my own trauma, you know, and if that's the case, like it's on me to handle my reactivity and maybe I do share their, share with the other person the impact that they have, but I don't, I really try hard not to mistake my own reactivity for truth that they need to hear to be a better person. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I totally know. And that seems like a tricky, complicated thing to yeah. me at this point in my life. I'm like, I don't know. Is this where, like where I feel such a strong reaction? And I have asked other people this, um, but like for me, it's like I get a tell in my body when something's not right. And I'm like, ah, oh, I have to say something, but am I, am I needing to say something from a trigger wounded part of me or do I need to say something because something's really not okay or both, you know, right. and then it gets exactly. tricky when it's both. And that's where like taking responsibility for my trauma and then also what I want to be different and what needs to be said, you know, it's a complicated thing, but we must do something, you know, we must talk about it, which is why I have, I'm exploring this conversation with various different people. And, and I know you, you are exploring this obviously too in your life. So it's tricky. Mm-hmm. It's messy. It's, this is messy work. It Healing is, is messy it work. Is. You know? Healing is Becoming, the messiest. Yeah. And, you know, unpacking race and privilege is messy work. 
Um, but we must do it, I think. So I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, may I talk about another moment? Oh, please do. Yeah. I think that's a perfect segue into the, to what you were sharing earlier. Yeah. So, so the moment that I, um, that I ended up calling Reverend Angel about, uh, before I spoke up was, uh, I was invited to be interviewed for, uh, a summit of writers, you know, one of those online summits where there's a bunch of little videos that are released each day and, you know, and, and so I was invited to speak, uh, as a poet in this summit, which I was excited to do because I was excited to have more visibility, et cetera, et cetera, right? And then I looked at the website of the speakers that she had found so far, and they were all white. And I had this visceral reaction. Looking at the website, my stomach just clenched and sank, and I just, no, you know, like, yeah. yeah. And so, so I. And that's your tell. Like, that's your tell. That's my tell. Yeah, that's my tell. Yeah, and that's what it's kind of a clenching, sinking feeling in the center of my being. (laughs) And, and so, um, I reached out to Angel sort of for guidance on what to say. And, and I called, so, and then I called the person and I said, because I wanted to find out what, what Angel helped me figure out was like, I wanted to find out had she reached out to a bunch of writers of color and, and no one had said yes? Like, cause that's possible that no one was available or no one said yes. Um, I, so before I, I sort of shot her down, I wanted to find out more about the situation. And so I first asked her that question, you know, had she reached out to folks and no one was available? And she said, no, that she wasn't well networked in that community. She lives in a very white part of the country and she just doesn't know a lot of people and I said okay well I know a bunch of writers of color that I would be happy to connect you with and she said well no it's kind of late in the game the thing is about to start in a couple days and I just don't have time to track down a bunch more people blah 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 blah. and then the third and then I asked well would you be willing to add some text to the website to say I know how this looks. Having an all-white panel of writers, I know that this looks bad, and I just am owning that I'm not networked enough or, you know, whatever, to find her own words to do that. But would she be willing to say something on the website to make it clear that she's aware that this is not okay <laughs> and mm-hmm. she is not willing to do that? And so I, I just got clear by that point in the conversation that it just wasn't a priority for her for the event to be inclusive. And I don't mean like even token inclusive. I mean just inclusive in reality, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I bowed out. Uh, I refused to participate because I just, it, I, I won't have my face on something like that. Like I'd rather sit in my house <laughs> and not be visible on the World Wide Web if, that's, if, if, if it's going to be in that kind of situation. Like I just, it's, it's, it's no, it's not okay in this day and age. Like that is just no longer okay. And I think the more white writers who take a stand and refuse to participate in conferences and panels and oh, publishing projects and any of the machinery that drives the publishing world, I think the more white writers stand up, you know, who stand up and refuse to participate unless queer folks and uh, folks of color and trans folks, you know, like unless the thing is properly diversified in the representation of what our culture actually looks like. Exactly. Um, you know, until that happens, yeah. like, I think that's what has to be happening now. And I still see posts on Facebook of, you know, friends of mine of color who are writers where they show up to an event and they're the only person of color at the event and it's just how soul crushing that continues to be. And I, and I, um, I just refuse to participate in that. And I think other white writers should too. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, yeah. I think more of us because it's on us to demand that at yep. that point. To demand it, to disrupt it. Well, to notice it, then to speak up like you did and to help other people notice it. Cause I think 
one of the things I run into with other white folks in the dominant culture, they don't even notice it. Like they've never exactly. been, yeah, they've, they've never been where in a situation where they're the minority and haven't experienced um, how uncomfortable that can be, how overlooked that can feel, how just you're just not seen or heard and you don't have the level of freedom to be yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to say a few things, like, and I'm part of the, I'm white and presented that, and, and these are just things that I've noticed going into spaces where I'm the minority and very intentionally doing that so that I can have some kind of empathy for mm-hmm. that experience. So, and the other thing is, like, we just miss out on so many rich perspectives and so much wisdom by having such a homogenous, dominant conversation or dominant mm-hmm. representation in so many different fields, not just like writers. So I absolutely agree with you. And thank you for doing that. And thank you for sharing your story about that. Um, Cause it's, yeah, it's on us. Like until white supremacy becomes a issue for white people and white presenting people, it will not end. <laughs> so yeah, the more exactly. I applaud you. Thank you. <laughs> um, Anything else you want to add on that? Well, just that uh, I'm in the middle of listening to this really interesting podcast that um, that a friend turned me on to. She posted about her on Facebook. Sonia Renee Taylor is an amazing writer. And um, what's her name? Founder Sonia Renee Taylor. Okay. She's a a poet and an activist and the founder of a movement called The Body Is Not an Apology. And it's a, it's a movement of self-love, uh, for all bodies, you know, anyone in a body. <laughs> uh, and she, um, she's black and posted on Facebook about this podcast called Seeing White. Have you heard of it? It's on, um, uh, Sounds on Radio. I think it's the name of the podcast. And they did a 14 segment series called Seeing White. That's all about the origins of whiteness, when whiteness became a thing, how it, it moved through the culture, why it was created as a structure, et cetera. So it's like really breaking down um, how it came to being, how it came into being um, worldwide, you know, not just in the States, but worldwide. And it's really a fascinating. If anyone wants to learn more about whiteness and what we're talking about here, um, Check out that podcast because it's really great. Thank you so much for adding that. And um, I will definitely check it out. And I, I want to add a couple things. I guess one thing that I wish for white folks is for white folks to realize how we are oppressed by whiteness mm-hmm. and how uh, how much of our culture has just been completely cut off. And race, yeah. Yeah, it completely erased and the, the culture of politeness, how stifling that is and how, and, um, I mean, just to name a few things that come immediately to mind, but the devastation of, of white supremacy, obviously we don't feel as deeply as people of color and we don't experience the depth of the discrimination, but there is a, a level of mutedness that I think we, we don't even realize. And we don't even know, like, there's a, a liveness and a color that's missing. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a function of um, that transition from when people were identified by where they came from versus by race. So, you know, in the history, when people came to the States, they were Irish, Polish, German, you know, they came, right, African. Mm-hmm. South American, you know, and um, and had strong roots and connections to those cultures. And then as whiteness was constructed, the allegiance shifted to rather than being Italian, you became white. Or rather than being Irish, you became white. And then you had this alliance now with all these other white people from all over different cultures. And so, so it was a shift that this erasure that we're talking about is the shift away from identification with 
your culture and your background to this constructed identification with a dominant weight. And then, you know, and then a culture has sort of developed its own, you know, that has developed kind of its own culture, but I wouldn't say I feel very connected to it emotionally. You know, it feels more like an imposition in a certain way. It doesn't feel true to me. And, and that's, I, I think that's why I feel really fortunate is I do have a grounding in my Venezuelanness. I have a grounding in my Swedishness. I have a grounding in those are the two main things I have a grounding in besides being North American, you know, from mm-hmm. from New York. And so I feel I just feel really lucky uh in that. Where, yeah. Yeah, I think um, you are. I, I know people that didn't <laughs> yeah. I, I know lots of people that haven't had that kind of yeah. grounding. Yeah, it show for me what comes to mind is it kind of comes back to fitting in and then belonging. And mm-hmm. it's like I how love much that. of your I love that distinction. It's so awesome. And fitting in means like agreeing and everyone is there's a sameness, there's a homogeneity to what you like and how you dress and where you go and what you do and what you drive and where you live. You know, like there's there's a homogenous to it versus it's okay that you're different. It's okay that you like something different. It's okay that you believe something different and you can be honest about it and I can be honest about it. And, and there's freedom in that and I'm okay and you're okay. And it's okay. You know, the first time I really had that experience was having friends, a, a very diverse group of friends in college. And it was such a different experience getting ready to, go to like a birthday party or go out dancing or go to dinner and people are just like, wear what you want. You know, you do you boo, you know? And I was just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know? what? Whereas you're growing up with, you know, for all white girls, it's like, well, what are you going to wear? What am I going to wear? And you've got to make sure it kind of goes together. It was just a different level of comfortability in being who, how, whoever you want to be, how, however you want to express yourself. And there's just a level of freedom, not only in your experience, but then with who you're around as well. And yeah, that's gorgeous. I love that. Yeah. And what makes what that makes me think of um, that distinction between sitting in and belonging is as someone who grew up between multiple countries and multiple cultures. I was very concerned with fitting in. Like I'm a pro at picking up body language, dress, uh, facial cues, um, linguistic habits of wherever I am. Because uh, as a child, you know, since childhood, I always felt not quite fitting in wherever I was because there were always several parts of me not visible there, right? And so I became this kind of chameleon able to blend and shift and and um change myself in a certain way to fit in like i an example when i i lived in um i lived in taiwan when i was 21 i lived over there for a year and i was fluent in mandarin and and to become fluent in a language you have to not only learn obviously the words and the and the grammar but you you have to learn how to move your mouth in the way that people who natively speak that uh, language move their mouth. That's part of actually learning a language and learning an accent. I mean, people have American accents because they don't know how to move their mouths in any other way besides English. And so then they try Mm -hmm. to speak another language, but moving their mouths in an English language way, and then that's how you get an accent, right? And so because I grew up with three languages, you know, from birth, uh, I, I somehow am more adept, as are many other mixed people. Um, I have a kind of facility to change my mouth, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better way to talk about it, but to, like, to actually change my face and mouth. And someone looked at me when I was speaking Mandarin once. They said, I, I, it doesn't make any sense. But when you <laughs> speak Chinese, you look Chinese. I don't understand why. Because I know you're not. But there, but you um, look Chinese when you speak Chinese, and that, and that's something that I I just picked up 
right, because of my situation. And it's taken me many, many, many years to find a sense of belonging because I never had that. I was really good at the fitting in part. I, I mean, I don't know if I was really good at it. I tried really hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tried really hard to fit in wherever I could because I was desperately afraid to offend, you know. And so as I've grown into more of a sense of myself and more comfort with who I am, that's when belonging has happened. I think belonging is actually an inside job and it's less, um, less given from the outside. It's more something mm-hmm. that you come with. And, and it's taken me a long time to experience belonging. But, but it's required inner work. It, it hasn't been so much. People could tell me from the outside, uh, you know, over and over again, like, we love you. You're a part, uh, you know, you're, you're a part of this. You belong. You belong. You belong. But until I felt a sense of my belonging in my own skin, I couldn't feel that. Yeah, I can relate to that. And that is, how did you do that? I mean, because I think that's kind of a human epidemic. Of, mm-hmm. Like, isn't that what we all want is to, like, deeply belong? And I think that, like, isn't that what, you know, kind of what we're saying, like, the, the extreme white supremacists, like, that's what they're so terrified of is, like, not having anywhere to belong, <laughs> not having their own space, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. You I know, think, and, but I think any time that you base your belonging on the outside, on what's yeah. around you, you're fucked. I mean, am I allowed yeah. to be fucked? Okay, you are. <laughs> okay, uh, this I is an adult show. Time, okay, good. All right, just like what? Um, uh, I think any time you base, like, yeah, I think the whole premise of of white supremacy is fucked because it's like if you're basing your sense of belonging on the need to have everything around you be a certain way, the moment it's not like that, your whole foundation of your life gets rocky and you're fucked. Mm-hmm. Like that's to me why spiritual practice is the most important thing. I want to say spiritual practice and emotional you know, doing your emotional work too, like not bypassing healing yourself. But like, but I think that's where spiritual practice is key because until you develop a foundation in something other than how the world sees you or how you feel in relation to the world, you're, you're fucked because your sense of self is based on something outside of you and therefore can never be secure. Exactly. And it's such a huge handicap to believe one that you can't control all that all of those things outside of yourself and then you're walking around like this fragile uh, constantly upset human being because nothing is going your way you know i see it all the time i see it all the time exactly and it's well it's well a shitty way to live (laughs) it is i mean and it and yeah it's it's uh you know it's rare that i can find compassion for i mean i that's Part of my work is to try to find compassion for people who don't see things the way I do. But uh, but, yeah. but that's one of the places where I can access compassion. It's like, oh, my God, how how hard it must be to be in a world that's changing so quickly when you don't have a sense of, of yourself as something intrinsic. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about, can you share about your spiritual practice and the emotional work that you've done? Sure. I've been, I I started meditating in my early to mid 20s. So I've been meditating for probably about 25 years. Not every single day. There have been times where I have fallen off of practice like anybody does. But, um, I've been sitting meditation for that long and then I did yoga really consistently until my mid forties when I developed too much pain to be able to do yoga at the time. And so, so those have been two of my major practices. And I also have been trained as a health practitioner, as a, an acupuncturist, as I was a massage therapist for years. I mean, I've been kind of in this, dynamic uh, with other people in the quote-unquote healing field. And 
we were trained in clinical counseling, stuff like that. And so I've been in that field also for about the same amount of time, so for about 25 years. I think the combination of all of those threads, as well as more recent work that I did um, in a community that's centered around a practice called orgasmic meditation, which served to integrate aspects of my sexuality, which often get kind of left behind in the meditation and yoga world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, like, I did, you know, for two to three years, I did really deep, intensive work and looking at my sexuality, how I function in the world as a woman, how to, how I relate with others, how to, how to be cleaner and cleaner with my communication, where am I sticky? So, and that work was done in community um, with other people who did this practice of orgasmic meditation. And that's been invaluable as well. I, and I consider that a major part of my spiritual practice, having done, I don't do, I don't practice orgasmic meditation as much as I used to, but, but that work really burns through a lot of places inside that hadn't been cracked open yet by the other practices that I had done, if, if that makes sense. It does make um, sense. And because I think um, you have to, ultimately you have to bring your practice into the body, right? So like most spiritual practice is kind of transcendent oriented. It's, it's, it's the idea is to transcend this limited idea of self, et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't grapple with yourself at the same time, if you don't come to terms with your very human being at the same time, then whatever awakening you experience can be kind of brittle. It, it has that same fragility that we were talking about uh, when people base their sense of self on the outside. It's like yeah. your sense of yourself as a spiritual person, if it's based on like, oh, wow, I see purple light in my third eye when I meditate, you know, like if it's based <laughs> yeah. on that you know, you're going to have a really fragile kind of awakening because the moment someone cuts you off on the freeway, you're like, ah! You know, yeah. Gone, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so, like, until you deal with the part of yourself that feels victimized, until you deal with the part of yourself, you know. I mean, and I had to do all this. I, I realized, like, how much of a victim I felt in relation to my life and the world, and I had to really go in there and, and work with that and, and learn to integrate my victim along with my powerful woman, along with my intellectual, you know, cynic who likes to stand off to the side and kind of snark at people who don't use pr proper grammar, you know, like until I dealt with all those parts of myself and, and kind of brought them all into the fold and found some way to love them all, um, my, my practice was kind of thin. Yeah, it's like fractured. There are parts of you that are just completely cut off, fractured. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like they get fractured. And that's a lot of the work I do with my coaching clients is kind of picking up those little pieces of self that we've dropped along the way. And and because they're still working, they're just behind the scenes or in the basement or whatever image you like to use for them. They're still exercising influence on your life, but it's just from a deeply disowned place. And until we own those places, and bring those places to light and kind of, and, and allow them to exist. And, you know, like until we, another way to say it would be until we uh, learn to love our shadow selves as much as we love our brilliant selves that we present the world, we're going to be at odds with ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and so that's a lot of the work that I do is supporting people in, in that, deconstruction and reconstruction work so that they're more so that they can go out into the world more integrated and there's and really put their desire out and have it have an effect and you know do something in the world it's powerful work mm -hmm. I yeah, have a question sure my coaches have been key I mean I think also receiving coaching I consider one of my practices as well because like we said before like we all have blind spots and so, you know, I think I'm trucking along fine and I'm talking to my coach about how great everything is and then she'll just be like, oh, what about this thing? Over here, I'm feeling something. And I'm like, ah! But I didn't see it until she pointed it out, right? So like, yeah. 
So I think that's where I, I think constantly being on a glowing edge like that. And, and I, I take classes at Agape uh, International Spiritual Center, which also is uh, deeply informing my practice as well. Uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, learning to see life from a diff- from this more unitive kind of perspective, you know, where there's one thing happening and that thing is God, like I get to confront all the places where I don't believe that, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. So that's been a huge part of my practice, too, for the last three years. That's brought a lot of joy into your life. It has. It yeah. has because... Um, yeah, because I've joined the choir and singing in the choir is just such a joyful experience. Being in community, the the songs and the lyrics themselves are really uplifting and just it's that's it's it's brought a lot of joy into my life for sure. What I love about singing is it's one of the best ways I've found to literally change my vibration. <laughs> like when exactly. I'm a, when I'm in a funk, man, I like okay. Are you done suffering yet? No, you want to keep suffering? Okay, fine. Are you done? And then I'm done. And then I'm like, okay, now sing your song or, you know, sing this. It literally changes my mood. Yeah. Singing and, and sometimes things good for that too, right? Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you something. Something you said earlier reminded me just something that I've noticed. Um, you said that we, like, we heal in community. And I totally 100% agree. And I also have experience being deeply traumatized and hurt in community. Mm, And so it's kind of this, it's this paradox of like, I have been like really hurt being close to groups of people. And I also know like that, but I heal in community. So it's like, it takes so much courage to open back up and to, like, lean into a healing, quote-unquote, space because by nature, wounded people come to it. Do you have Mm. thoughts or what do you think about that? (laughs) Oh, man, yeah. I I was going to ask you, like, how you've navigated that because I've noticed the same thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I have seen that in a lot of my friends. Uh, who've been part of the community and then left the community and, and then, you know, and then, yeah, it's not, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, yeah. yeah. What comes up, what I'm now at this point in time, I, I feel like I learned something new, dramatic, like at least every month, if not more. Um, but it comes back to the body. It comes back to, because even in, in healthy spaces, there are times when it's unhealthy. And even with phenomenal, extraordinary leaders and guides and teachers, there are moments that are potentially abusive or intimidating or a power play. You know, so it it comes for me, what I'm learning is to be attuned to my body, be attuned to my gut and my throat and and take responsibility for my life, for what I need, for my boundaries for how those boundaries may shift. I think that's, and to know that nobody is and perfect. Do you, so when you, when you feel something, you know, let's say you're in a, a community and you feel something is off because you feel it in your body, you get that, that sign, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, do you say something or, or do you leave? It kind of depends. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I, I, for it, me too. Yeah, I think sometimes it's not appropriate to say something. Like it would, it wouldn't cause the kind of result I would want. Um, and so, like for example, if like a leader says something, I'm like, mm, that's messed up, and that's not okay. Depending on the relationship I have with the leader, where it's a mutual respect, I can I'll come to them later and say, hey, this felt really off to me, and somebody who is still quite grounded and not on an ego trip will be able to hear that and take it with a, with a grain of salt, knowing that I, of course I have my lens and they have their lens and, but our intention, especially if we are agreed on the intention of how we want to evolve and how we want to grow and what we want to cause in the world, we're usually able to to work through it. Um, 
and then sometimes there have been times when I have in group, uh, like kind of, there's a phrase call out culture, you know, where I've said, oh, Hey, yeah. this is not okay. You know, but I, tr- I, I think it's really important for it to be as much as possible rooted in love and not righteousness. Oh, that's such a great distinction. Yeah. And, uh, and, um, and I, and I know that because I've had, I've been blessed to have people who have called me on my stuff from that place. And and it, and it just feels different. I feel like, Hey, and you've got a huge blind spot here and your ass is showing and you need to mm-hmm. shut up and pull up your pants. You know, like, I'm like, oh, my God, yep. thank you. I had no idea, you know, and then, then I can receive and I can be like, oh, okay, I'm aware that I do that or I'm aware that I have that. So, um, yeah, so, so I, don't, I, don't, I mean, and, and that's what I'm talking about when I talk, when I say healing happens in community, because, yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing. I, I had a similar experience where I moved into an apartment with a bunch of people um, in New York before I before I moved to California almost three years ago. Um, I lived in New York for a while in an apartment um, with, there. I think there were 10 of us at one point living there with like four bedrooms. <laughs> and, uh, and so we were in very close quarters and, and, and it was an intentional thing to, um, to live in community, to be engaged with each other in this way. And, and something I discovered really quickly was how uptight I get when things are like messy, dirty, dishes not, you know, people not holding their own in terms of keeping the space clean. I mean, we were all meditators. We were all practitioners. Like there was a certain amount of precision that I expected. And I was one of the, on the older side of the people. There was only one other person, I think, older than me who lived there. And everybody else was a lot younger and so had sort of different standards <laughs> around cleanliness. And, and so we would get into these tussles, right? And, but what I discovered was, um, or what a couple of people said to me, like, when you start getting tight, I feel and hear a high pitched whine in my system, like energetically. I, what it sounds like to me when you get uptight is like, <laughs> I just want to like run away from you. Like I can't be near you. So, with their help, I learned how to notch it down a bit and ask for things to be done before I got to the high-pitched wine level of intensity, right? And I wouldn't have what learned a gift. that. Wow, right? what a gift I they gave you. My goodness, yeah. Right, it was a huge gift. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was, even though at the time it didn't feel super loving, we're still friends to this day. And I can, I now recognize that that was really out of love that they were doing that. Although at the time I just felt like beleaguered and victimized and pestered and, but, but, you know, now in retrospect, I can see like, oh yeah, this is the, this is the loving, difficult work of community, which mm-hmm. is very different from places where community can get off track and power dynamics can be unhealthy and things like that. Mm-hmm. That is a very different experience than that. What I love about that too is that it's like a it's a way to learn how to have healthy conflict. And by healthy, mm-hmm. I mean it, there, it's productive. It's not you're not mutilating somebody. You're like, hey, we want to like we want everyone to feel like they belong and then they can say what they need to, but take responsibility for the impact you're having on other people at the same time. And exactly. exactly. And we don't learn. We don't learn how to have healthy conflict. I feel like we, if we all massively got reparented on how to have, have healthy conflict, <laughs> we would have like a totally different world. But that's oh really God, cool that you were you're able to like explore that in the community. Yeah, I feel really, I feel fortunate with that. All right, dear. Um, I want to go into the closing questions here. Is what gets you out of bed in the morning? Oh, I love, well, I love doing practices in the morning. I have to say, like, what gets me out of bed is a desire to meditate, write, 
most mornings, Patrick and I will sit together, we'll meditate together, and then we pray together. And it's such a grounding aspect to our relationship. It grounds us in something larger. You know, it's easy to get sort of myopic in relationship, but where both people are looking outward at something larger, then the relationship kind of takes its proper place. And so I, I love starting my day that way and really working with, you know, working with coaching, poetry, photography, the, the things that I'm passionate about. That gets me up in the morning. It's, it's like there's too many things, actually, sometimes. You know, like, I don't know where to start. I want to do all the things mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I just feel so much desire and love and, yeah, desire to express and self-express and connect and find these sticky places with people and help them get free and all that stuff. Like, I, I just, uh, that keeps me very... I'm having trouble sleeping enough hours lately <laughs> yeah. because of all that desire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've definitely tapped into your purpose and your passions and living with a deeper level of self-expression and wholeness and, like, helping other people find that. Like, that's thrilling. Mm-hmm. That's it is. That's beautiful. a great word. Yeah. It's yeah. thrilling. So I know shadow work's super important, but I think also the practice of owning your talents and your gifts and being proud of yourself is really important, especially for white girls who are, you know, we're trained to be polite and quiet and and not be too big or boastful. So I love the practice of owning your gifts and your talents. And there's a quote by Marianne Williamson, her deepest fear quote, and just to quickly paraphrase it, she says, you know, as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So uh, in that spirit, in that spirit, I ask you, what are you proud of? What do you, what gifts of, of who you are and what you've overcame and all the work that you've done to be who you are today? What are you most proud of? Oh, thank you. I love this question. And it's actually, I, I think you're right in that, that it's very confronting um, to to say these things. Like my, um, I just had a birthday last week, and my assignment for my coach was to make a Facebook Live celebrating myself. So I, so I'm lucky. Oh, I love that. That's a great assignment. <laughs> yeah. So I'm coming to your yeah. question, having just done this less than a week ago, mm. and already gone through the confrontation of it. You know. Because it, and I do agree, I think change happens through what we place our attention on. And so if we're always placing our attention on what we want to change about ourselves and what we hate about ourselves, that creates a certain kind of perpetuation of those things. Whereas if we turn our attention to the things we love and that we're proud of and that we already do well and celebrate those things, then it creates the space where more of that can show up. And so that's how I hold that question. It's like, oh, how do I create room for actually more of my excellence to be yeah. here? Brilliant. And so Brilliant. Um, so yeah. what I celebrate, I celebrate that I'm a good listener, that, I, that I'm dedicated to the true and the real, like feeling for and listening for the the true and the real as much as possible beneath the surface of what people are presenting. And I celebrate that, that I, that I go really deeply into the things I care about, that I have a, a drive toward excellence and mastery that has me go far with the things that I care about. I celebrate that I've cultivated a depth of self-awareness in the same way like what you said in the quote, like our presence liberates others. I feel like that the people I get to work with or really who get to work with me benefit from the level of self-awareness and self-acceptance that I've cultivated and continue to cultivate. I mean, I'm a work in progress, so I'm still working on self-acceptance. I'm still seeing areas where I... I'm not where I want to be and I'm working with that. But the depth of that that I've cultivated and my depth of practice over the years activates something in them, right? And and my clients develop deeper self-awareness. They develop the ability to speak their desires in difficult situations. They develop the 
ability to stay clear in difficult situations and navigate them and become perhaps the presence in the room that is then helping the other people, you know, liberating the other people in that room, right? And so that there's a kind of percolation of effect from my dedication to practice. Uh, so I celebrate, yeah, I celebrate all those things. And I celebrate that I'm good with the shy kind of tentative one. And there's a certain way that I can be with skittishness and shyness and reticence and people who like to hide that I feel really good about. Well, because I've, I've been that person and I'm largely often still am that person, but, but I've worked really hard to have enough confidence to come out and so then again I can provide that kind of energetic space for someone but also I've learned how to calibrate like I tend to not barrel through you know or or what's the word railroad over a Mm -hmm. more skittish or shy person I tend to kind of be able to match maybe again that's part of being mixed and growing up between places and learning to kind of calibrate myself to wherever I was it's made me then more able to calibrate to the introverts and the shy yeah. uh, people and the people who normally are invisible because I've been invisible and introverted and shy. I mean, I am still introverted. But <laughs> and so I, I celebrate that, that like I, that I see, I see the ones, I, I see the people who tend to try to hide and I, and I love them. That's wonderful. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for that mm-hmm. talent and for owning it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My next right. step is to love, is to learn to love the extrovert, you know, the ones who do the railroading more better. Yeah. <laughs> That's my growth edge. That's your growth edge. Completely <laughs> unconscious of their impact. <laughs> do you have a wish for the country, the world, or the planet, or maybe a prayer? Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, my wish for the coming year is that we each learn to take responsibility for our reactions, for our beliefs, for our thoughts. And by doing that, learn to treat each other with more gentleness. Amen more gentleness. Yeah, my yoga teacher many years ago, one of my yoga teachers said, uh, the stronger your core, and he didn't mean like your muscular core, he meant your inside, (laughs) your core core. (laughs) The stronger, let's call it your center. The stronger your center, the more soft you can be at the periphery. So I think right now we've created a culture where people are really hard on the outside because their insides are soft and undeveloped and they don't know what to do with all their emotions. So they develop a shell. And so what I would like to see is a world where we strengthen ourselves from the inside out and have such a strong sense of who we are, what we stand for, you know, who our true self is, that our outer selves, the, the cloak of personality that we each wear, that that cloak can be softer because our internal sense of self is stronger. Yeah. That's, that's, I would love to see that. Lots of strong cores and soft outsides. Beautiful. When you die, who do you want most to miss you or thought of in a different way? What do you want your life to be for? What will be missing when your body has passed on? Mm. Uh, I would say my community of brothers and sisters on the path, mm-hmm. like people who care about awakening, care about consciousness, care about the the inside more than the outside, you know, who love the inside as much as the outside, let's say that, because we don't want to leave the outside behind. I, I want I want my life to be for love and I want to be 
missed by the people who put their hearts first and lead with their hearts in the world to change it for the better. Oh, that's so moving. Thank mm-hmm. you. Tell me something you celebrate about your life. Mm. Ah, I, I celebrate that I, that I keep on going, that I have this tenacious desire to live in truth and that I keep on going to unravel the layers that stand between me and that. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to add? Mm, I'm so grateful for this conversation. Like, so grateful to to get to talk with you and uh, at this level, you know, like mm-hmm. these kinds of conversations, I find so nourishing, and so what what we need at this moment, you know, this level of connection and nourishment, I think, is what what people are starving for, and yet too scared to reach out to create. So I yeah. honor you for reaching out to create it, for seeing a need. And, and filling it with what you're doing and who you're being in the world. And I'm grateful for that. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for d- the work that you're doing and for sharing so vulnerably. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Again, that was Marie Elizabeth Molly, and you can find her at mamali.com, M-E-M-A-L-I.com. If you have a story to share or an experience that's helped you find your voice, I'd love to hear from you please go to she'sheard.com and click on the button that says share my story. If you'd like to stay in touch, please sign up for our newsletter for updates on the latest releases and opportunities to connect and tune in to the next episode. More inspiration, wisdom, and insight is on the way. Until next time, standing in our collective liberation, be well.